Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. We all like our sports teams, don't we? How many, how many games have the Braves won? Ten, I know, some of y'all know. Y'all like you're keeping count, right? Okay, we all love our sports teams. Some of us are fans. Some of us are, are super fans. Now, if you've ever been to a game, you've seen these people who are, who are super fans. I'm not talking about the people that wear their team colors, wear the jersey of their favorite player or anything like that. I'm talking about the people that go above and beyond, right? I'm talking about, uh, I'm talking about people that, that you know are, uh, are, are uh, we might not even call them fans anymore. We might go ahead and just call them fanatics. And I got to thinking about the fanatics in sports, and I, I sort of wondered, what if we treated church the same way that fanatics treat their, their sports teams? Like, look at these guys. These are from, uh, these are Wake Forest Demon Deacons. Uh, I thought this, I mean, you got you to give these guys some credit. Painted their chest yellow, wrote Wake across their chest. And, and this is just an example. This happens on any given Saturday during the fall. You got guys that will do this, and girls will do it too. But, I mean, they're, they're, they're all into this. And, and if you do this, you're guaranteed to get on camera. Um, what if we did that on, at church on Sunday? What if we had not demon deacons, but regular deacons who slide up in the balcony up here, painted their chest, wrote CVBC on their chest, and just leaned up uh, across the, the balcony when the pastor took the stage? Yeah, go Pastor Brian! I mean, what if that happened? Right? I mean, that'd be interesting. Um, <laughs> you might make it on the broadcast. You might make it on YouTube. Here's another group, the Cleveland Cavaliers. Um, these guys have a message for the opposing team. They all got signs that say, miss it for free throws. And I don't know if that matters. I mean, I've never been on, a, I've never been on an NBA team. I don't particularly enjoy basketball, if I'm just real honest. But I don't know if that messes with them or not. But, but I was thinking that, uh, that what if we did this in church where everybody had a sign that said, amen, right? And uh, when the preacher makes a point, we hold the sign up, amen, or, or maybe we take that approach, and, you know, when the preacher kind of preaches a dud, you can say, not your best, right? I mean, uh, that'd be interesting, right? Here's one from the Ohio State University. I don't know why it's the Ohio State University. It's not like there is an Ohio State University. So, uh, But here's another example of what these guys will do to their team. These guys put their Christmas decorations to good use. They got the, 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 red, the red Christmas tree balls and made a necklace out of it. And so I thought, what, we could do this, right? I mean, we could take our leftover Christmas decorations and make necklaces out of them. Of course, you really need the face paint, uh, or I could do the head paint. I mean, I could, I could really do what that guy's doing to really match. But I was thinking, you know, that could help with that after Christmas blah. If everybody just took their Christmas tree balls and made necklaces and painted their face, I mean, that'd be fun, uh, right? It'd come to church that way. Here's another one, Duke basketball. I mean, that guy is all in. You know, I don't know how long it took him to paint his face like that, but he went and got his wig. He can feel the W coming his way. I mean, what if we did this with the offering, right? We collected the offering, and when the ushers got through with the offering plates, everybody went, yeah! Right? I have heard of churches that have applause when the offering's collected as a way of offering praise to God, but uh, I thought that was, uh, you know, what if we did that? And then there's this guy. This is a Turkish soccer fan. So I guess he's a football fan. 
He got banned from the stadium. And I, I was re researching this, and, and people were like, well, we don't really know why he got banned. Well, I'll tell you why he got banned. If he was willing to get banned and go rent a lift so that he could still watch the game after he got banned, I don't need to know why he got banned, right? I mean, if he's willing to go that far after he got banned, there's no telling what he was doing in the stadium. Now, again, if you had gotten banned from your favorite team's stadium, you know, if you guys were at, at Truist Park last night and you celebrated that 10th win a little too hard, that grand slam a little too loudly, and you got kicked out, I, I would probably be at home sulking, right? I mean, I got kicked out of the stadium. I can't go back. They've banned me for a year. I'm not sure how big of a fan you have to be to go to the rental company, get you a lift, park it outside the stadium and raise it up so that you can watch the game. I don't know how much of a fan you have to be to go through the trouble and the expense of doing that, but what if we put forth just a fraction of that effort when it comes to, when it comes to church? You know, we look at these folks, and if you like, I mean, again, I'll wear my favorite team's jersey, but when paint starts to come out and be applied, that's when I start to think, okay, it's not really worth that. You know, I look at these folks and I think, these guys, these gals, these people are, are a little, they're off their rocker. I mean, again, I'm, I'm all about being a fan. I enjoy a good baseball game or a good football game, but these guys are a little extreme, and I can't help but wonder, I wonder what the Lord would say to us about this sort of thing, especially nowadays, because, right, it's not like, you know, if you go to a college or professional game of any sort, it's not an inexpensive endeavor. It's going to cost you hundreds of dollars to go to a game. But to go to one of these games, if given the opportunity, listen to what we'll do. We'll endure crowds, right? I mean, people who hate crowds, you'll endure a crowd to go to a, a, a sports game that you enjoy. You'll, you'll tolerate the crowd. Um, I mean, some of these stadiums, like, I've never been to, to Neyland Stadium in Knoxville, but I've heard the seats are like this wide. And, and you'll sit in that seat for three or four hours next to somebody that you don't know because you have the privilege of sitting at that game. We ain't doing that in church, are we? Oh, these are closed. Y'all scoot to the middle here. Make room, right? No, preacher, we're not doing that. We're not going that far. You know, I need my elbow room. We'll endure extremes in temperature. It, cold, heat, doesn't matter. We'll tolerate it. We'll embrace it, right? Overpriced food. You don't ever go to a, a game and say, man, that was the, the best bargain I've ever gotten on a hot dog. That $8 Coke was so refreshing. You'll pay $50 to park your car. I mean, you, you, you might grumble a little bit, but you'll still do it. You'll still pay to park your car, and then you'll even walk a mile to, from your car to get to your seat. And even then, you won't really complain about having to walk as far as you did. You'll go through security. You'll empty your pockets. Ladies, you'll sit your purse on the conveyor and let them look into it. You will go through all of this trouble just to be able to go watch a football game or a baseball game. but let the air conditioner go out in this room. <laughs> right? Everybody get real quiet. You can hear it running right now. And just praise God for the air conditioner. But let it go bad. 
And I'll get phone calls. Pastor, we having church today? What? You'll go sit in 90-degree bleachers at a Braves game, but you won't come to the house of God when the air conditioner is out. See, we'll go to great lengths to express our allegiance to a sports team. But what are we willing to do to show our allegiance to the king? This morning, we find ourselves in a lengthy passage. I'm going to cover as much of it as I can, but, uh, but there's way more here than I can even possibly dig into. It's all of chapter 26 and, and the last half of chapter 25. You see, Dr. Luke here records the details of Paul's trial. He, in, he details the, his incarceration in Jerusalem. He, he gives us incredible detail, perhaps the greatest detail we have in the entire book. I was talking to, to Foster earlier that once you get into Jerusalem, the, I mean, the detail of the book of Acts really just amps up, and, and, it's, and there's a lot of content that is given to us here. But to kind of help set the context this morning, I want us to look at these last few verses from Acts chapter 25. If you recall from last week, Paul is now serving time under his second Roman governor. Felix was replaced by Festus. When Felix was in charge, he sort of toyed with Paul. He would frequently bring Paul out to, to talk with him about Christianity, but he really wasn't interested in the gospel. He was really hoping for a bribe. So for two years, this went on with Paul and Felix, but now Festus is in charge. And Festus, I've got to give him credit. He's trying to solve the problem. He's trying to get to the root of the problem. He's trying to figure out the problem with Paul. And this is where we pick up today in verse 13 of Acts chapter 25. I would invite you to stand if you're able to, um, in honor of reading God's word here from Acts chapter 25, beginning in verse 13. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there's a man left, a prisoner by, by Felix. When I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had the opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion, about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem, be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could, uh, held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I've brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we've examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for um, 
the, the challenge that Paul is up against and how it informs us and how Paul's response to it is an encouragement to us. We pray, Father, that as we face a hostile world, that we might be faithful to Jesus. And even when the world looks at us and says, they've lost their rocker, that we would, uh, we would recognize that in our obedience to Jesus, uh, that's, where we find, that's where we find life. Uh, bless us now as we think about these words. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You could be seated. You know, the Romans had a, had a pattern in Judea, a government system that they had identified that, that really had worked for them. We see it played out uh, throughout the story of Jesus and into the book of Acts. And they would place a Roman official over the territory as governor. We think of names like Pontius Pilate and Felix and Festus. These are the governors. These are Roman, probably military leaders, politicians. These are the folks who, who answered directly to the emperor. But they would also have a, a vassal king, a, a king there that would, that would answer to the governor, that would answer to the emperor. And, uh, and the goal was to try to keep peace. As long as there was somebody there to help keep peace, it was fine. And now the king is King Agrippa II. Now, as we understand about these kings in Judea, I think it's safe to say that the church has no love lost for this king or any of his predecessors. Just listen to some of their, um, some of their lineage. Agrippa II, the current king, his great-grandfather was King Herod. You know King Herod. He was made, made famous for killing all the babies in Jerusalem. And so, uh, so, again, not necessarily somebody that, uh, that you want to have over for lunch, right? Uh, oh, I've got King Herod coming over. You mean the one that killed the babies? Yeah, him. Uh, the the great-uncle of Agrippa II had murdered John the Baptist. His dad, Agrippa I, is the one directly responsible for executing James, imprisoning Peter. We've already encountered him in the book of Acts, Agrippa I. Back in Acts chapter 12, we find out that he was so full of himself that he allowed people to worship him as a god. And just for the record, it's probably not wise to let people worship you as a god. It doesn't usually go well. It doesn't go in your favor. Dr. Luke actually records for us in Acts chapter 12, verse 23. He says after, um, after he allowed him to worship, allowed the people to worship him, it says immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Now again, you say, well, you know, if you die, you're going to be eaten by worms. But no, that's not what Luke said. Luke's a physician, so he, he, he diagnosed things accurately. What did Luke say? He was eaten by worms and then breathed his last, okay? So he was like, right, that's horror movie stuff right there. I mean, that's, that's what happened to this guy. Uh, he was eaten by worms and then breathed his last. Now, if your name is King Agrippa II, you go back and you look at your lineage and you think, you know what? I don't want to be like those guys. I want to be a reformer. I want to, I want to restore honor to the office of king, and if you would think Agrippa II was like that, well, you'd be incorrect. Well, why? Well, he's got, a, he's got a friend with him. 
His friend is Bernice. Uh, again, we talked, about, uh, we talked about Drusilla the other day, that uh, Drusilla was, uh, was somebody that you don't hear about anymore, although I did learn about Cinderella's stepsister, Drusilla, um, and so I was informed about that. But again, she's not somebody that's highlighted in, in movie history as being a, a, a really great person. Bernice is another one. You may, Bernice may be more common than Drusilla, but Bernice is Agrippa's companion. And history tells us a little bit about this power couple in ancient Judea. You see, Bernice was Agrippa II's sister. Um, Bernice had once been married to their uncle, and now she was involved with her own brother. Later in life, she would be involved in a relationship with Emperor Titus and Rome was so disgusted by Bernice. So this is pagan Rome, not Christian Rome. This is, this is Rome as in the power center of the empire. Rome would be so disgusted by her that they would force her to be sent away. So let's just play this out in real life. If you encountered a woman today who you know had been married to her uncle and was now involved in a romantic relationship with her brother, you are probably walking on the other side of the street, are you not? Like, you're not engaging, you're not having a conversation with her, your immediate response is, is this, ugh, right? That's who this is, okay? So we're not dealing with noble, righteous, God-fearing people here. We are dealing with, we're dealing with some, some really, really rough folks here. Well, what was the function of the king? Well, King Agrippa, his, one of his jobs was to serve as kind of a cultural interpreter for the Romans. And so if, if uh, the governor, if Festus had any questions about what it meant to be a Jew, well, he could go to the king and the king could help him understand some of the dynamics of what it meant to be a Jew. And so we've got somebody in the office now it's probably not the best representative for the Jewish religion. But Agrippa was seen by everybody as the authority. As a matter of fact, he was given responsibility for selecting the high priest. And so the guy in charge of picking the religious leader of the people is somebody who's involved in a romantic relationship with his sister. And not only that, he was also in charge of the temple treasury. So all the money that came into the temple, King Agrippa II was responsible for keeping an account of. And so this just kind of sets the stage. You, if you're thinking, man, I bet there's all kinds of corruption going on there, you're probably right. I mean, this is not somebody, you're not going to let this guy babysit your kids, right? You're certainly not going to let this guy be in charge of your bank account. Uh, probably not going to go to King Agrippa for, for theological instruction, right? King, I have a question about faith in Jesus. <laughs> I'll find somebody else to ask that question to. But this is who Agrippa is. So if you're looking at this, you're scratching your head thinking, man, where, what purpose does he have? You're in good company. These people are, honestly, they're out of their minds. But Festus, the governor, he's a little stumped about what to do. I got this guy in prison. He's been down there forever. 
I don't know what to do with him because he hadn't broken any laws. The, the fight that they're having is religious in nature. He says, he says even that in verse 19, he's, he's in trouble over religious questions. It'd be like going down to Lafayette and, and you know, trying to settle a, a theological debate at the courthouse over, you know, whether a, whether a deacon can be a man or a woman. I mean, it would be like that. It's like, well, judge, would you please interpret this for us? The judge says, this is not my, this is not my jurisdiction, right? I mean, I don't have any place in this conversation. And that's what Festus is dealing with here. He even says in verse 20, he didn't even know how to investigate it. And so it's not even, he doesn't even know what, how to get to the facts of the case. So King Agrippa clearly is the person who can solve the problem. But based on his own moral reputation, he was really in no position to make any of those judgments either. So this is the scene. This is what's going on. This is, the, this is the corruption that is brewing here. And we're told in verse 23 that Agrippa and Bernice came in with great pomp. High school graduates, you listened to pomp and circumstance when you walked the stage not too long ago. That word pomp is actually the Greek word for fantasia. So if you are a fan of the old Disney fantasia, that's, that's what that Greek word is, is fantasia. That's where it comes from. It points to the idea of a, of a fantasy. Okay? It's a spectacle, to say the least. Now, if you remember the, the Fantasia when Mickey's dealing with all the brooms and everything, I mean, that is, a, that is a spectacle, an animated spectacle, of course. But here you've got the king, and you've got Bernice, and they've got all of their pretend royalty. You've got military commanders. You've got leading politicians. And really, this is all much ado about nothing. I mean, it's a big, it's a big ceremony. It's a big, it's a big gathering of powerful people, but there's really nothing together about. It's a familiar scene. Did y'all watch the across the pond this week? The the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, seventy years. Queen Elizabeth has been on the throne, and man, they threw a party for her. I'm glad it wasn't a surprise party. She's been on the throne for seventy years. You don't want to surprise somebody like that. But man, it was a spectacle. They had Union Jacks lying in the streets. They had all kinds of soldiers. They had 200 horses and mounted soldiers on those horses. They had 1,400 soldiers on foot. And these guys had their big poofy bearskin hats, their red tunics. I mean, if, if it were 1776, you would say, the redcoats are coming, the redcoats are coming. I mean, it was this huge spectacle. And I'm looking at it thinking, well, I'm sure glad we fought a war that we don't have to participate in this, right? Uh, I mean, a huge spectacle. Maybe in our context, something like it would maybe be the State of the Union, where you've got everybody who's important gathered together in one room to hear something that's probably not all that important. I mean, that's the biggest thing I can compare it to. But here in the middle of the spectacle, surrounded by powerful people, royalty, surrounded by everybody who matters is Paul, who's been in prison. I mean, he probably looks like a, I mean, you know, I can't imagine what he looks like. I mean, they're all dressed in their regalia, and he is probably wearing a modest robe and shackles, looking particularly small and particularly unimportant. Festus is real honest about it, though. He's willing to send Paul to Caesar, but he's got nothing to charge him with. He doesn't have any charges to put on the, on the, you know, the arrest warrant. He's got nothing to say, you know, you need to charge him with this. He's willing, but he doesn't know, he doesn't have a crime that he's committed here. And so in chapter 26, Paul is finally given the opportunity to make his defense before this very intimidating audience. 
And what's Paul do? He doesn't look at him and say, you guys are all wrong. You should have never arrested me. I don't belong here. Instead, he takes advantage of this very important opportunity to share the gospel. Because that's what the apostle Paul does. He takes advantage of opportunities like this to share the gospel. And in classic form, he shares it through his own personal testimony. The first 23 verses of chapter 26 detail Paul's story. Please go read it at some point in time. It is a very powerful story that Paul gives us. And the model that he gives us is really good because it actually gives us a model for how we should share our own testimony. A lot of people struggle with this. How do you share your testimony? How do you, how do you share the story of what Christ has done in your life? I don't even know where to begin, some people say. But Paul gives us a really great model, a really good pattern to help us remember how to share our testimony. I love Paul's not pushy. He's not Bible thumping. He's not doing any of that. It's his story. It's what Christ has done in his life. He is telling them who Jesus is to him. And he begins with the reality of who he was apart from Jesus. Paul is very clear about his life before Christ. His sin was real. His sin was legitimate. He gets into the reality of his sin. He persecuted the church. He oversaw death penalty sentences for Christians. He was zealous for the law, but not so zealous for Jesus. You know, it's important that we remember who we were apart from Jesus. It's important that we don't forget that we were sinners destined for hell. It's important that we remember our own sin, that we remember our own rebellion, that remembering that reminds us of how great a Savior we have in Jesus. And it affirms to others that we too were sinners. There is no one in this room who is perfect. There is no one in this room who was perfect at any point in time in their life. We were sinners by nature and sinners by choice, every single one of us. And so when we look at a lost and dying world, we're in good company because nobody out there is perfect either. There's only one who's perfect. His name is Jesus, okay? We have to acknowledge that, that we too were sinners. We too were destined for hell. We too were rebellious. We too needed Jesus. We did not earn our place in God's kingdom. We didn't have any merit that we were able to cash in for our redemption. It's not like we got to the end of our life and said, yeah, but look at all the good I've done. No, we were sinners destined for hell. That's the end of the story. What's Paul do? He goes on to tell the story of how he met Jesus. Starts there in verse 12. You remember the Damascus Road story. It's one we talk about it in, from the time we were little kids. Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road. Jesus showed in a blinding flash, and, and that began to, that started the work in Paul's life that would change him from a persecutor to a preacher. He appeared to Paul with a particular plan. In Acts chapter 26, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, Jesus said, rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Paul tells them how he came to Jesus. He tells them how Jesus met him on the Damascus Road. Everyone in that room knew where Paul encountered the risen Christ. How did you come to faith in Jesus? How did you come to faith in Jesus? Maybe just let that question rattle around in your head for a second. How did you come to faith in Jesus? You know who you were before Christ. You know what sinner you were. You know those things. But how did you come to faith in Jesus? I think it's good for us to not forget that. That moment, that place, that time when we met the Lord Jesus Christ. How did you come to faith in Jesus? Let me say this. If you're not able to fill in that blank, 
If you're not able to, 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 to fill that story out of how you came to faith in Jesus, then I would encourage you, you need to give some honest reflection on your faith. Because there's a lot of people who grew up in church, they heard the stories, and they just kind of assumed that, that uh, you know, hearing those things was enough. But the gospel calls for response. The gospel calls for, for a, an, an action to take place. It's not just enough to hear those things. We have to put our faith and trust in Jesus for our salvation. The gospel demands a response. And I know there's some folks, they have a journey to conversion, right? I mean, you think about a, a season in your life where, where things were... Things were out of sorts. And, and maybe there was that moment when in the, you know, kind of as the exclamation point at the end of that season when you finally realized that you needed to, you needed to be saved through Jesus. You know, that, that season comes to a close, but that season comes to a, a, a crescendo to where you actually know that there's a moment of decision. There's a moment where you are justified by God. How do we respond to that offer by Jesus? Sometimes it's a simple prayer that we pray. We call it the sinner's prayer sometimes. But please know that praying a prayer doesn't save you. Praying a prayer, if that is what saves you, is a work, and it is not a works-based gospel. Praying a prayer is how we respond to the gospel. That prayer is a reflection of our heart's attitude toward the gospel. A prayer, that sinner's prayer, is a way of expressing what Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What saves you is Jesus, not your prayer. Okay? Praying a prayer won't save you any more than I can save you. What saves you is Jesus. That prayer is the expression of your heart attitude towards Jesus. And we see Paul's heart was changed at that moment. He didn't continue down the road to Damascus to carry out his evil, destructive mission. His life changed. His direction changed. He said in Acts 26, verse 19, he says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. The third part of Paul's testimony is his description of his life since Jesus. And again, Paul's life was not perfect. It was filled with pits, uh, potholes and pitfalls. It was not an expectation of perfection, but it was a new reality. And that's true for each and every single one of us as well. None of us have been perfect since Jesus saved us, but we've been different, right? The sin that we used to walk in, y'all remember that stuff? I mean, there was stuff that we used to walk in. And every once in a while, you may even find that it's calling out to you, asking you to, to, to dabble with it again. But the thing is, is now in Jesus, that stuff is disgusting to us. I mean, that stuff is, that stuff is, is not compelling to us. Even if you fall and stumble into it, it's, you find that it is disgusting to you today. Now, you would think that this testimony of the Apostle Paul would have some results. Right? I mean, here he is in the middle of, of this, this, uh, this spectacle. And he has just shared his powerful testimony of who he was as a persecutor of the church, who he met on the Damascus Road in the person of Jesus, what he's been doing ever since. You would think that that moment would generate a, a powerful gospel response. Get the choir, cue the organ, all four verses of Just As I Am. Get the invitation counselors ready. We're going to see people saved. It's going to be incredible what transpires. But that's not what happens at all. Paul pauses briefly to catch his breath, and Festus, the governor, shouted at him. 
Paul, you are out of your mind. You are off your rocker. He says, your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Isn't that interesting? I think we probably should be prepared for that reality today. Because the world in which we live today is inclined to believe that those who are sold out to Jesus followers are out of their minds. Isn't that interesting? We can paint our faces and paint our heads and spend hundreds of dollars to go to a sporting event. Whatever, you do you. But if somebody is faithful to Jesus and they come to their Sunday school class and they go to church and they share the gospel, those are the people who are crazy. Understand the audience here. You got Festus. We don't know his affiliation, but we can safely assume he's a good Roman, so he worships all the Roman gods. He even acknowledges Caesar as some kind of a god. You've got Agrippa and Bernice in this gross romantic relationship that violates all kinds of laws. But he's also considered the expert in the room regarding the law that he's violating, which I guess makes sense because if you're violating the law, you're probably pretty familiar with what it says. Paul even appeals to that expertise in verse 27. He starts working on Agrippa's knowledge of the truth. You got all the politicians and power brokers. None of these people are friendly toward the gospel. Who's the crazy one? The only one in the room saved by Jesus. He's the crazy one. He's the one who's out of his mind. He's the one who's off his rocker. I, I don't think it's a stretch this morning for me to say that we're living in a world that's lost its ever-loving mind. I mean, look around. Um, it's it's the, the, the things that this world is embracing today is, is nutty. We're living in a world that has lost its mind, but it's convictional Christians who are seen as the crazy ones. It's those who, who truly believe in Jesus and that belief in Jesus has changed them and changed the way that they see the world. We're the ones who are crazy. It's June. We know it's Pride Month. Isn't that interesting? Did you know this Pride Month? Nobody, nobody told you, did they? I've heard businesses advertising, celebrate pride. That's interesting, isn't it? Because as Christians, we're like, of all the things you probably should celebrate, the word pride is probably not one of them. And this has nothing to do with anybody's orientation or initials or anything like that. It just has something to do with the fact that the Bible doesn't celebrate pride, does it? The Bible, as a matter of fact, speaks very forcefully about the idea of pride. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humble, there is wisdom. Proverbs 16, 18, oh my goodness, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 29, 23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. That's just what Proverbs has to say. That's just what the wisdom of Solomon has to say about just a five-letter word, pride. 
As Christians, we say, you know what? Even if there was such a thing as Evangelical Awareness Month or Baptist Appreciation Month, <laughs> at no point in time would we ever look at that and say, it's Baptist Pride Month. If anything, we should say it's Baptist Humility Month because that's where honor is found, not the other way around. But if you believe these things, if you say these things outside of this room, you're met with insults and derision. You're the crazy one. You're the wrong one. You're on the wrong side of history. Our world today wants Christians very much to keep their testimony out of the public arena and in the private space of their homes and their sanctuaries. You can be a Christian here, but don't you take it out of here because if you do, the world will look at you and say, you're the crazy one. You're off your rocker. And the only way the Christian faith is tolerated today is when it's expressed like our president expresses his faith. He has personal convictions. He um, claims to be a, a, a good Roman Catholic. He said on numerous occasions he's a faithful Roman Catholic. But what's interesting is so very little of the Roman Catholic Church's moral teaching makes its way into his political opinions. I have a feeling that Paul would look at that and say, what a foreign idea, that your religious conviction would not inform how you behave in public. What a, what a strange thing. I mean, again, Paul could have sat in this, this, this spectacle and said, you guys do what you want to do, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and we'll all get along. But that's not what Paul does. Paul doesn't look at this group and say, I'm a Christian, you're a pagan, let's sing kumbaya and go to our own corners and get along with each other. It may be crazy, but I firmly believe this. There is no separating of our confession of faith from our engagement in the world. You cannot separate the two. And if you do, you're being dishonest with yourself and you're being dishonest to God. So what are we to do? Well, this has been our reality to, through our entire study of the book of Acts. The disciples didn't sign up for the gospel to win a popularity contest, and neither did you. You didn't give your heart to Jesus so that you would be celebrated by the world. And the best thing I can say to you this morning is this. Embrace the weird. Embrace the weird. Because I would much rather be weird in the eyes of the world and right in the eyes of Jesus than any other way. Embrace that God is calling you to be different. Embrace that God is setting you apart. Embrace that you can't see eye to eye with this world. Embrace the weird. But as you do, understand this. You go to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and it has some things to say about what Paul deals with in these two chapters. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. John says he heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ has come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, one who accuses them day and night before our God. And they've been conquered, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. That's what Paul just got through sharing was his testimony. In this great struggle between sin and salvation, in this great struggle between the world and the, the, the spirit, 
Where is our victory found? Well, victory is not found in our accomplishments. Victory is not found in our favor with man. Victory is not found in our popularity. Victory is not found in public opinion. Victory is not found in our possessions. It's found in two places. John says it's found in the blood of the Lamb. That's the part you can't do anything about, right? We can't do anything about the blood of the Lamb. That's what God has done on our behalf. He has taken care of that. That's the gospel. That is what God did. He gave his son that we might have eternal life. He, he spilled his blood that we might be covered with his blood, that our sin might be atoned for. You don't get victory without the blood of the lamb. You don't get victory without the Lord Jesus Christ. You do not have salvation apart from Jesus. There's no other name given unto man by which man can be saved. It's Jesus. The second part, though, that's the part that we get to participate in, the word of their testimony. That's what we do with the blood, right? I mean, if, if somebody heard Paul share his testimony about Jesus and they had said, I want to know more, I want to give my life to Christ, that person has to make a decision. What are they going to do with Jesus? What are they going to do with Jesus' sacrifice? What are they going to do with Jesus' resurrection? That's what, that's what begins to make our testimony. That's what we do with the offer of salvation. That's what Paul told Festus and Agrippa and everybody in the room about. Paul said, I was a persecutor of the church. Jesus found me on the road to Damascus, and I've not been the same since. Beloved, that is your testimony today. You were a sinner. Jesus found you, and you've not been the same since. That's what Paul's story is. If you're a Christian today, you don't have to worry about what the world thinks. You don't have to worry that they think you're crazy or that you're off your rocker. Embrace that Jesus has changed you and rearranged you. Celebrate who you are in Jesus. You don't have to worry because you were covered by the blood of the Lamb and you have the authenticity of your testimony. If you look at the end of, verse 20, of, of chapter 26, you see how Agrippa responds to all this. Agrippa hears all this and, man, I think he's one of these guys that he knows the truth. Paul confronts him about it. He says, you believe that what the prophet said, right? And Agrippa knows he's got to say yes. And so I think he's sweating. I think he's that guy that, that hears the Holy Spirit working and he's sweating because he knows what he needs to do with this. But man, he really loves his life. He really loves this experience that he's got. And so I think he's, I think he's struggling here. And what's he do? He says in verse 28, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Redirect, redirect. <laughs> Paul is turning the wrench on his heart, and Agrippa says, oh, we're not going there. And what's Paul say? Whether short or long, I don't care how long it takes, Agrippa. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, king, but everybody in this room who can hear me this day, that they might become such as I am except for these chains. Paul says, Agrippa, it's not just for you, it's for everybody in the room, it's for all these people in the room, that they would all be freed by Jesus right now in this place, that revival might break loose in Caesarea. <laughs> That's how crazy Paul is. That's how nuts he is, right? He has the chance to make a defense that will free him, but instead he just turns the wrench tighter. Because he loves Jesus more than he loves the world. 
because he loves Jesus more than he loves his freedom. Because he wants to see all these people give their life to Christ. That's how crazy Paul is. That's what matters to him right now in this moment. That all might believe. That all who heard him that day might become just as crazy as he is. Crazy for Jesus. Would you pray with me please? Father, I thank you for the Apostle Paul and for his, <laughs> his courage. He had no fear in that moment. He could have made a case that could have freed him. He could have made an argument that loosened his chains. But instead, in that moment, he showed his accusers, and by extension, he shows us just how much he loves you. Father, we know in this room today that there are those who, as we have unpacked Paul's testimony, are even reflecting on their own. They've remembered today who they were before Jesus. I pray that they have reflected on how they met Jesus. Maybe that vacation Bible school. Maybe that camp experience. Maybe it was that coworker that led them to Jesus. Maybe it was their mom or their dad in the peace and quiet of their own bedroom where they came to faith in Jesus. They know even as they think on that day that they've never been the same since. That their life has changed. And even though they've not been perfect, you've rearranged their hearts. You've made them a new creation. I pray that even reflecting on our own testimonies today might help us to see just how different we are from the world around us. Lord, we understand that we are living in a world that more and more does not want people to be convictional Christians. It's okay to be a churchgoer. It's okay to do the religion thing inside the building, but leave it there. Don't you dare take it into the, your workplace, the ballot box. Don't you dare take it to the classroom or the sports field. Leave it in the church. But God, we understand that when we are given a new heart in Jesus that we don't get to leave it behind, that it follows us everywhere. And if indeed the world thinks we're crazy for it, then God, help us to embrace it. We believe what Jesus said. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Father, I pray that if there's any in this room today that is, we've reflected on the power of the testimony, they can't think of when they gave their life to Jesus. They can't find the time where they encountered the risen Lord, maybe not in the physical way like Paul, but just to the encounter of the gospel, to, to have the risen Christ call on them to decide. Maybe today is the day that they meet Jesus. I pray that in these next few moments of response, that if there's any here today that have not given their life to Jesus, 
that they would not disobey that call. Like the Apostle Paul, I did not disobey the vision that they would not disobey the risen Lord moving in their heart right now. Like that little girl on Thursday night who gave her life to Jesus, maybe there's some here today that need to make that very same decision. For those of us who are in Christ, Lord, would we be faithful to take it each and every place we go, any time we go, any day we go. That it would inform every aspect of our being from how we raise our kids to how we love our spouses, to how we drive our cars, to how we tip at a restaurant, that it would inform everything about us. Because just like Paul, our desire is that they be like I am, except for the chains. Or none of us are in chains, but if we're in Christ, we are free. Lord, we love you and are thankful for your word today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.